So the classic tale for that is if your management fees or your director fees or your salary, whatever you want to call it, or whatever it's called in your jurisdiction, if that reaches more than a certain part percentage of your gross profits, you really want to be careful. Okay. And well, well. Welcome to the 10K Collective podcast for six, seven and eight figure Amazon and e-commerce sellers, part of the amazing FBA podcast family. If you want to scale fast, target a seven figure exit and enjoy the process, then keep listening. Ladles and jelly spoons, boys and girls, welcome back to the 10K Collective podcast, the place to be for six, seven and eight figure, I should say, Amazon sellers, a subset of the amazing FBA family of podcasts. Today, we're talking to Rob Tabraka, and we are talking about how to tie together, on the one hand, the dream, the reason we got into the whole business in the first place, your personal wealth goals. And on the other hand, your accounting, which can often feel just like a burden and a why are we doing this kind of thing. So Rob is uh, an expert in uh, accounting, particularly for e-commerce and a great topic of uh, conversation. So Rob, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. So where are you coming to us from, Rob? Tell us a little bit about your international background here. As you can probably tell by my name and my accent, I am Dutch, but I spent the majority of the last decade in Asia in various places, mainly China and Thailand, but I'm currently based in Budapest in Hungary. That's uh, quite a variety. So you've got an extremely international outlook, which I think is really helpful in a very globalized business, i.e. e-commerce. So what are we talking about here? So we're tying personal wealth goals and e-commerce accounting. In theory, that is a, a fantastic thing to do, but let's define the subject, Terry. What do, you, what do we mean by personal wealth goals to start with? Let me turn it around. As you, start, as you mentioned in the intro, people start a business for a reason. And a lot of times that is freedom or wealth or just really not wanting to work for a boss. And what I've seen is that people run a business, especially if freedom is the objective, they run it without a specific goal in mind. And that means that they're going to have an amazing journey, but they have absolutely no clue where they're going to end up. So in my eyes, it's, it, the foundation of the business is what you want to achieve with it. So your personal goal, whether that is a lifestyle business or whether that is becoming the next Jeff Bezos, that will drive a lot of the decisions you're going to make in the business. And therefore they are very closely connected. Interesting. So this comes down to goal clarity, which is a yes. quite a, quite a huge topic. Next question then, why does goal clarity really matter? Surely if you just make money, as people say, you know, whatever money means, and we can discuss that, obviously, so an accounting expert. But okay, I want to make money. Doesn't matter about goals. If I can see the money coming in, I get to choose afterwards what I do with it. But what about that? Why does that not work? If that makes you happy, if that works for you, be my guest. But I don't believe that's optimal. You're not going to just put some Facebook ads up and see if it runs or a couple of Amazon ads up and see if it runs. You want to do it as good as you can because that's going to get you the best results. And... The goal that you have has a massive impact on how you run your business. If you want to grow as big as possible, you want to invest as much as you can in revenue growth. And you don't care so much about profitability or a lot of the other possible metrics. If you are a bootstrap lifestyle business and you want to have a good income and minimize how much you work, 
and you don't care so much about reaching nine figures in revenue, you're going to have a completely different mindset on the decisions that you make in terms of how much to reinvest, what you want to pay yourself, how much risk you're willing to take. So having that goal clarity translates into every strategic decision. And every strategic decision, of course, rolls down into more practical and operational decisions. Like it. I like the structured way of thinking strategic decisions and then operational decisions. And uh, by the way, making notes for you folks. So if you want to check them out at 10 at kcollective.com, we'll make a few notes and, and cra- capture any links uh, that are helpful for you. I, I find that people often want to have their cake and eat it as the <laughs> the little phrase implies we need to choose one or the other, but yes. not both. I know quite a lot of people that want to pay themselves and then also expect their business to grow despite the fact that they're taking all the money out of it. So is that a common mistake? Yeah, lack of goal clarity leads to lack of clear decisions. Indeed, people want everything. But the key things that we see that goes wrong, and again, it depends a bit on what the personal goal is, but taking too much money off the table is definitely one of them. And we see that mainly with people that are running it as a lifestyle business. They take too much money out, therefore they have too little left to invest in product development or in marketing or branding, and that's going to harm the long-term growth. The opposite side is also true. We see people take too little out and they keep reinvesting money. and, And that's especially in ads, even though they're not as profitable as they should be. So they keep uh, working hard to make a little bit of money, put it back in only to get little to no return. So they're in this hamster wheel that keeps running. Their personal life doesn't get better. The business doesn't grow. So that gives a, a very awkward catch 22. Too much risk-taking is, especially with first-time entrepreneurs, a really recurring one. Put a, put all the cash that you have available into the launch of one new product. And if it fails, immediately they have a problem. They're running out of cash and immediately they're in the corner. That is the most easily avoidable mistake. Another one that we often see, unfortunately, is people that stare blind at one particular metric, whether it is revenue, which would be an absolute disaster, or even if it's customer acquisition costs. We have one client who was focusing completely on customer acquisition costs because they were trying to get on that one down so they would be profitable on the first order. And they spent a couple hundred thousand dollars on ads, sorry, burned through a couple hundred thousand dollars in ads before we got in, uh, on board. And we told them, look, if you keep doing this with the pace that your acquisition cost is going to go down, you'll be bankrupt before you're profitable. Keeping your eye on one metric and thereby forgetting all the other factors is also a really common and potentially disastrous mistake. Wow, this is um, sobering stuff, but hopefully I want to say anyone listening to this getting a bit depressed that the the good thing about finding a mistake is you can fix it. I think living in denial, you know, pro having one's cake and pro eating it, not not casting any aspersions to any British politicians because I can't be bothered to get into political arguments. Trying to have your cake and eat it normally is a sign that you're deluded. And if you're deluded at some point, what feels fun comes to an end. And then obviously it's extremely unfun if you go bankrupt or lose your house because you've got a loan secured on it or other unpleasant things that can happen. So I would suggest that whilst we're talking about grasping unpleasant nettles, if you can solve this, the flip side is 
there's great stuff on the other side, right? I've got to say that just in case it sounds very depressing. However, let's dig into this because I see a few of these things around. Let's talk about what stages of business it's appropriate to 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 look out for these things and, and indeed when, you know, what are the classic sort of stages of business coming up? First of all, taking too much money off the table. Let's talk about how to solve this. <laughs> um, it's lifestyle businesses, so in other words, people aren't that ambitious to grow a, a huge business and we can see obviously that it's basically going to kill the business because you haven't got the money left in it. So yes. what's the solution to that? And, and who, so who, let's, before we even talk about solutions, let's talk about what are the signs that you're doing this in your business? Let's talk about this first. Let's diagnosing the problem. And then we'll talk solutions. So what are the signs that somebody's doing this in this business and who is particularly vulnerable to this at what stage of business growth? These, the, the, to start with the latter one, the group that we see most vulnerable for this are people that care only about their lifestyle and really treat their business as that thing that funds their lifestyle. Because they're not so much interested or vested in the financial health of the business. They're spending most of their time and effort on how to live that perfect lifestyle. So the classic tale for that is if your management fees or your director fees or your salary, whatever you want to call it, or whatever it's called in your jurisdiction, if that reaches more than a certain part percentage of your gross profits, you really want to be careful. Okay. And what, what percentage would that be? I know it's a kind of how long is a piece of string that depends, but it, give us some rough ideas that we, at least that should be a flag for investigation. If it's more than 20% of your gross profits, I'm going to get, I'm going to get nervous mm -hmm. because in general, let's say you will have like about, let's say 60% gross profits, 30% ACOS, that leaves you 30%. And if two thirds of that goes to your salary, there's probably not enough meat on the bone left to invest in growth, invest in quality team and other things that you need to scale the business. Interesting. I, I would say that the typical gross profit numbers I see is assuming that by defining gross profit that all your direct costs um, minus your advertising for selling would typically be 30 to 40% in most of the entrepreneurs I've worked with at scale doing six, seven, eight, maybe eight figures. 30% ACOS is pretty high, but 10% is more typical. But 30% at the, the bottom end of it, it sounds to me on the higher side. So after ads, all the gross profit after you, so everything before your overhead. So that's quite a realistic number, 30%. I would say it's quite often going to be more like 20%. And then you take a bit of uh, heads off. And if you're better in your in marketing or if you have a better niche, then yes, it can be lower. We've yeah. seen it substantially lower. I've also seen it a lot higher. But let's do a reality check. Let's do very quick maths for people here. So I want to wake people up if they're listening or watching and, and hear this. If we've given you a wake-up call right now, I, you're not going to like us for it, but I think we're potentially saving your business life. So it's like a, a visit to the doctor's office that you don't enjoy, but thank God you went. So 20% of your gross profit, let's assume 30% growth mark. So 20% of 30%, let's try, try and word this out here, is going to be what? This is terrible. My math is so bad. 6%. So 6% of your revenue, right? That that you shouldn't, that will be a worrying figure, which is quite sobering. So if your business is doing $100,000 a month and you're taking out $6,000, you're already worrying uh, rob and by the way 30 percent gross profit margin quite healthy i would suggest and that's we haven't even talked about overhead so that's quite a sobering um percentage right that actually i know some people have <laughs> literally had a business doing a few thousand dollars a month and went to, and lived on a beach in thailand for a while even had one product and, and needless to say that went horribly wrong and then a couple of years later i was working with them to try and rebuild the business so that didn't work very well so thank you for the reality check 
quick note here. This is really based on the assumption that you're looking to build a sustainable long-term business. Yeah. We are now currently also working with an e-commerce company that found a niche that works and an, and an ad combination that works. And they know that this is not sustainable because this market, that their, their specific niche is going to implode or be lost or that's, that will go away. They are extracting every penny they can because they don't believe it has a long-term potential. So it doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't take a war off the table, but it has to be a very deliberate choice. You're muted. Sorry, yeah. uh, schoolboy error there. Yeah, I would say also if you are taking money out of a business because you believe the business is dying, then you should take it out pretty damn quickly. Yeah. But also, I would suggest you don't want to be spending on lifestyles like holidays or cars or whatever else it is that floats your boat, or even more responsible things, things like um, you know private school fees for your kids or whatever it may be, because you're going to need to build up an alternative income stream pretty quickly, aren't you? So I yeah. guess what you should do is put it in cash and then maybe invested in, in real estate slash property, depending on the side of the pond you're on, et cetera. Yeah. Okay. That's quite sobering. That's the person who's vulnerable to it. I guess the signs you're doing it is really more than 20% of, of gross profit. That is, that's a really useful reality check. I think a lot of people in the early stages I've seen doing that. Um, now taking out too little is somewhat tragic, isn't it? Because you're not even getting the fun of spending money on fast cars and these women or, or whatever it is you want to spend your money on. I see that as well in some of my clients that have got, say, seven-figure businesses, but low seven figures. Yep. What are the, So who's vulnerable to this uh, taking too little out piece? I'm going to say this is usually people that are overly optimistic, um, more optimistic about the potential than the business at that point actually warrants. So I have one client in particular in mind They've been saying for years that they are investing in this new marketing strategy that's going to lower the acquisition cost. But in reality, they have been spending and spending, and they're burning most of their profits on trying to find that new marketing channel that works better. While my view there is, they might as well cut that investment in half. It's not going to change the result much and take out more to de-risk themselves personally. Okay. So in other words, if it's not really working it doesn't really matter if you do less of it. <laughs> That's what you're saying. Yeah. If anything, if it's not working, you may stop bleeding as much as you did before. Yeah. 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 By the way, we've got a, a message from an accounting, uh, from a, a Facebook user saying accounting yuck, but some great advice and content. <laughs> I take that as a compliment. Obviously we're, we're dissing Rob's chosen profession here, but on the other hand, yeah, a lot of people are going, oh, oh no. I've got accounting and don't like it, but yeah, great advice and content. I agree. This is great, Rob, because if you slight, reality check something bad, then you can start to do the good things, I guess, as well. Sorry. True. S slight question there. I'm not an accountant myself. I'm not an accountant. Okay. So correct me. So I am, I've, to be honest, I personally also bloody hate accounting because it's, <laughs> uh, the, the accounting work itself is insanely boring, but the value that you get from the work is it's invaluable because it gives you the, uh, the insights and the visibility that you need to make the, the decisions about the cool stuff. It is the yeah. foundation that is absolutely boring, but it holds up the rest of the business. Great. Thank you for clarifying that. And I suppose what we're talking about here is really not the business of doing bookkeeping, because by the way, that is a hireable skill. You, you yeah. Really, if you're hating it, it's an anonymous user side. I don't know what your name is. But if you're listening uh, or watching, 
anonymous Facebook user who thinks counting is yuck. I, I, I agree. By the way, my personal experience, most entrepreneurial types I know are not good at, at bookkeeping, but you can hire that. And I think you should for the simple reason, as you just said, the value you get out at the other end means you can have an intelligent discussion like this, hopefully, and make some conclusions about what you're going to do, which is the critical thing. So coming back to solutions, then we didn't really give solutions, by the way, for the person who's taking too much money off the table because they're lifestyle business. Assuming that you are taking out more than 20% of the gross profit and a management salary, what's the solution to this? Is it simply just stop doing that or what are the other solutions? It is all, look, in general, the, the, the advice is make a plan, figure out what is really important for you. What are you, and, and therefore, what are you willing to accept? Are you willing to accept that the business is underfunded or may go down the drain because you take too much off the table? Then fine, keep doing that. If that's a deliberate decision, it's your business. But in general, I would say if you're taking too much off the table, the solution is temporarily reduce that, invest that in future growth. And when that growth materializes, you can go back to the old level. Yeah, I like it a lot. So it comes down to really a relationship to the business. That person may not be, if it's a working business that's throwing off enough cash flow to fund a lifestyle even temporarily then it may be that it's actually quite a promising business. So they are undervaluing the future of the business. And it seems like the person who's taking too little out is overvaluing the future of the business. Either which way, it's a mismatch between the entrepreneur's behaviors and, and their, no, it's not even that, most their perception of their business versus the actual reality. Very interesting. So what other solutions have we got for the person who's taking too little out? So investing less, but presumably if it's not working very well, if you keep spending like crazy on ads and you're not really getting profits for show for it, then that says to me something more profound than just put less into something that's not working. Uh, my instinct would be to say, stop doing what's not working and find something that is. What do you, what do you say to a client when you're working with them in that situation? In essence, the same, but we phrase it slightly different. I yeah. basically say in that case, pay yourself first a base salary that covers your personal lifestyle, as long as it's somewhat reasonable. And that means that there's less money available in the business. And that means that they are forced to make decisions about where to stop spending. Okay. And we'll yeah. guide them towards so, yeah. cutting the things that don't work uh, if they don't get to that conclusion themselves. Okay. I like that. Yeah. So you, in a way you're imposing a discipline, not on your personal spending as in the sort of person number one who, who just yeah. wants to go and sit on the beach in Thailand, but you're imposing a discipline on the business by saying, right, I'm not, I'm going to keep this money for myself and my family. Interesting. So let's take a, an example of, I've seen this pattern with a, it's not untypical for a, a client or two that I've had in the past where they'd say making about say just over a million dollars a year in revenue. They've got some staff and some overhead and the overall, I don't know what this structure is in terms of gross profit and overhead and breakdown, but the pre-tax process or the operating profit is pretty much about 5% and they've got to split it between themselves and their business partner, which gives you about $25,000 profit per year. And of course, you can't necessarily eat profit because that's the theoretical thing is it's not cash flow. So what would you say to a person in that situation? Because he makes my heart bleed, always had, has done when I've worked with him in the past. Do they do pay themselves a salary? They are, so is that profit like the bonus on top of the salary? Very good question. I don't think that, I think that they're not paying themselves at the moment. I think that's Then they're not profitable. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So what would you say to that person? What's, what was the advice? What do they do? Pay yourself a salary. Because the director's fee or your owner's salary should be your overhead expenses. It is a normal cost of the business and the business need to carry that. So 
if you don't have the cash flow, still book it. You may not be able to pay it, but still put it in your PL as a cost. Because otherwise you're deceiving yourself on how profitable the business is. You may think you you may look like you have 5% net margin. Actually, you're below zero. And that's going to change the decisions that you make. Because if you're actually below zero, you should be either cutting costs or be more efficient in your investments and your growth strategies. Uh, because you don't have that much margin to play with. Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. And so basically what you're saying is you should book it as, so if you haven't got the cash flow, so obviously you took the money out of a business that's making basically no profit, you will kill the business. But what you could yeah. do is book it, as you say, in, in other words, this business owes you whatever it is, twenty dollars $25,000 a year wouldn't be a great deal, but it would be a start for covering your base costs. But and then the business owes you that. And then the next year, maybe it owes you another 25,000. So the business owes you 50,000 overall in your director's loan account, right? Oh, that makes sense. And then I guess you need to cut costs and or you know, increase efficiencies to the point where you can, you yeah. know, actually then actually get the business to pay off its loans that it owns to the directors. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. This is very wise advice. I like and Honestly, for most, the number one place to look at cutting cost is cutting SKUs. There's I'm going to bet there is an 80% chance there are SKUs that you're actually making a loss on because the velocity is too low. You have them in inventory, you pay for storage, you, you pay for management time, you pay for sourcing time. So in nine out of eight out of 10 cases, cutting SKUs is one of the easier ways to free up cash flow and free up profitability. Yeah. And by the way, we're going to talk about the difference between profit and cash flow in our next episode, which is obviously something that people at the more sophisticated end of, of business owners and, and managers understand but they feel like that's a distinction for accountants i, I would argue it's really really critical but you make a good point and i think yes that i've seen that a lot that i've actually it's really nice when your clients go and do the stuff you suggest isn't it? it's always gratifying and, and one of the clients in there 10k collector mastermind doing i don't know a few million dollars a year i'm not sure exactly what the run rate is it's varied a lot over the pandemic period does have a lot of people going up and down but serious player and lots and lots of skis hundreds of skis on amazon and he went away and he did an 80 20 analysis of which skis brought in his profit and out of i think at that point 300 skis he had live on amazon i think 10 were producing i can't remember what the percentage is which is bad of me but a big percentage of the profits which yep. is typical and of course the flip side of that which I, he hadn't done but which would be the harder rather more soul destroying <laughs> reality check would be oh and 10 percent of them are losing us all half of the losses and yeah you're right that cutting stuff is yeah. i was reflecting on just today i think the sunk cost fallacy is intellectually simple but emotionally incredibly hard it's one of those things where it's a discipline of emotion not insight isn't it so if your accountant says okay and this is why you've got to have an accountant that they get the numbers sorry what's going on with my camera they get the numbers and they uh, show it to you and they say okay so by the way, Mr. Entrepreneur or Mrs. Entrepreneur, that you've got a hundred SKUs. These 20 here are losing you a lot of money. And the obvious conclusion from that is, oh, I'm responsible for my business. Therefore, I must cut these SKUs. And I see very few people doing that. I see they cut everything else. They cut the ad spend, they cut the staff, but they don't want to cut SKUs because they feel like there's some kind of brand value in having them out there at a loss or something. What, what's your response? Do you have the conversations like that? And if so, what do you say to clients? I wouldn't directly, I usually don't tell them directly, you need to cut these cues yeah, it's a bit because then it's my decision and my statement, and that will put them in the defense. I'm asking them, this is 
this queue is making a loss. Is there a strategic reason to keep it on? And yeah. they'll start looking for uh, reasons <clears throat> because it's awesome. It's an awesome upsell for this one, or it's brand value here. But if you challenge those assumptions, that layer of emotional protection or uh, the sunk cost fallacy will peel away. And in some cases, there is a really like an anchor product that's the brand maker. Sure, fine. If you need to make a loss on that to bring in the margins with the, with the adjacent products, that can be a legit strategy. But again, it has to be a very deliberate decision for them. Yeah, I think a lot of people use the word loss leader or they use the word brand um, yeah. because they see bigger corporates doing that. Unlike Tesco's can sell me or Walmart in America can sell a loaf of bread for 25 pence or 25 cents and it costs them, you know, a pound and they can afford to make that loss because they run on tiny margins, but crazy amounts of revenue. And also they are funded by bonds that are low um, invested, low loans that last for 10 years. So they've got stable investment. And they're funded by stock market investors. So I think that we can be fooled by the behavior we see by the big corporates that we interact with as customers every day. I, I think that if we start doing that sort of stuff, it can quickly lead to a bit of disaster. I mean, do you see that that ideal of lost leaders are coming up a lot with your clients? I don't see it coming up a lot, but where I see it work really well is if there is like a, for example, the Nespresso machine, uh, that type of product, where the products or your printers in the old days was the typical one. Where the machine is sold at a, at a loss, but the consumable behind there is the margin maker. That is where it works really well. Yeah. And that's a bit like the, the kind of idea of the Kindle, isn't it? That Amazon famously, you know, doesn't high, doesn't give high price tech. And if you want high price tech, you go to Apple and they make a large profit margin on that. But the Kindle probably, I'd imagine sells at a loss or a break even, but they make a lot of money from the content they sell you. So yeah, yeah. it's the same idea. And by the way, that's a very interesting business model that's probably underexploited, you know, being that the, the cartridge printer machine, I always looked at that and I've got a laser printer partly for that reason, because I always looked at that and I thought I'd love to be on the selling side of this, but this is a disaster as a consumer. You spend huge yeah. amounts of money, $40 printer or $50 printer, and then you spend two, $300 on printer cartridges. But yes, you're right. Apart from that, then there's probably not so much justification. So let's come to this, um, by the way, great content. I, I'm loving this because it just ties in with the reality I see with my clients when you really get into the numbers. And this feels very real to me so that this may be tough to hear, but yeah, somebody was just saying, yeah, this is how I actually operate. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on to the person who's taking too much risk, especially first time entrepreneurs. Who's vulnerable to this? You've mentioned first time entrepreneurs. What are the signs that you're doing this? What, when do we need to say there's a red flag coming up for this particular issue? Well, I clearly see it if they tell me the plans and the plans are completely disproportional to the rest of the business. But if for you yourself, the, the, the thought experiment there is probably if this fails, what's the consequence? Will this impact the rest of the business? And if it does, you really want to think twice uh, before committing to it or see if you can stage gate it. Product launches is the number one thing where I see this happen, where sellers have this vision that, oh, this new product is going to be the one and they're investing all their available cash in it. If you uh, catch yourself thinking, oh, but this new product is the one, hit the pause button and really challenge yourself if that's true. 
if it's really that sure or if there's objective confirmation for it or if it's your expectation. Just because your competitor sells 40,000 units per day doesn't mean that you will. Yeah, it's that objective confirmation of your vision. Yeah, I guess that the hard thing with entrepreneurship is that it does require a leap of faith sometimes. But no. what I would say is that more more that the thing that you said that strikes me as a really great reality check is if this fails, what's the consequence? Will this impact no. the rest of the business? Frankly, <clears throat> from my experience, is often an optimistic question. Will you have a business or will it impact the rest of your financial life? That's when it worries me. So I refuse these days because I, I want to sleep at night. I refuse to um, do private label training for somebody who's going to put their life savings into one product. I'm, I'm just saying, like, I'm really sorry, I'm not going to work with you. Or they want to borrow money. God forbid, borrow money from their family is my favorite disaster scenario. Okay, so let me get this straight. You want to borrow money from your family to launch a product in a space where you have no expertise. And yes, you're hiring me. I get it. I will improve it. But I can't wave a magic wand and tell you the future. If I could, I'd be charging crazy money. And then you can afford me because you'd be spending all your money on my fees. And yeah, and then, okay, this is your kind of life savings. And what if this doesn't work? So I do see the scenario where this hopefully isn't the target listener for the 10K Collective podcast because it's geared to people who've got established businesses. But if you're listening and that's you, please don't do this. You could do retail arbitrage. You could do wholesale. You could do some Kindle publishing. There are many business models where you don't have to bet the farm. So (laughs) thank you for that. Now, I guess the solutions then, what are the solutions to that, that person's situation? In my eyes, the best solution there, it's not about, oh, you shouldn't invest, but in stage gaining it. So step by step, commit a little bit for the first step and then anchor. Are you on track? Is everything that you made in your plan, is that validated? If yes, then go to the next step. And then again, after a certain period of time or a certain amount of budget, stop, take a breath, evaluate. Is this still valid? Is this still working? Is Are all the signs still green? Is the market validation there? Is the initial listing there? Is the, the, is everything that we want to invest on or below budget so far? But again, especially the market validation there is usually the the critical one. If that is there, then go on to the next step, but always make sure you have an out and a go, no, go moments. Yeah, really like that. And by the way, it's exactly how I structured things over the last several years for the private label training is, okay, if you can possibly find any way at all of testing this at a smaller scale, even if it's at a moderate loss or break, let alone break even, I'm absolutely happy with that because that gives you a go, no go moment when you maybe invested two, three thousand dollars instead of 20 or 30,000. That's really, really important. Thank you for, for reinforcing that. I would say also market adoption is really critical. So I think it's Mark Andreessen, the really famous venture capitalist from the Silicon Valley says there's before product market fit and there's after. So he sees it as two different universities. He says before product market fit, and by the way, this is in the venture capital back world where they have a lot of cash to start with. So this is not something you should do at home if you don't have a lot of cash. But he says you basically do anything it takes to get product market fit. And then after you've got that, then you've got, you've actually got something to play with. So I would say that often people push for product market fit and the the market's just going, no, we don't actually interested in your product. When you come across that kind of situation, what are the signs? When do we, that $64,000 question, when do we say, I'm going to abandon this product? It's not working. How do you make that judgment or how do you advise people to make that? You don't make that judgment on the spot because on the spot, every entrepreneur is overly optimistic. There's always an argument to keep going. You want to make that go, no-go decision objectively beforehand. These are the criteria. And if we don't meet those, 
we stop. Or we, if we meet, if we do meet these criteria, we go ahead. But you want to make those criteria earlier in the process and not on the moment itself. Okay. Because exactly. you get into a gambler's addiction where, but the next round is going to be better, or there's a one more step to do to validate. And before you're still neck deep into the mud. So that decision is beforehand and it's cold so that it takes all the emotion out of the decision itself. Yeah, I, I love this. This is so hard to do in the moment. And this is that sort of entrepreneurial wisdom that is completely different for managing an existing business because you don't have that kind of challenge, which is Seth Godin put it in its simplest form. He said, okay, before you go into something, a project, put a time or an amount of money beyond which yeah. you just kill the project. If it doesn't hit X by Y time and uh, it's brutal and everyone hates it. So you have to have that conversation with your business partners, investors before you get there, don't you? And, and yeah, that's super hard. As you say, the gambler's addiction is somehow Amazon has gamified Seller Central in a certain kind of way. It's the world's most disgusting interface considering how wealthy the company is and also, they treat us, you know, very badly. Sometimes it's third party sellers and we all know this, but nevertheless, there is something extraordinarily addictive about it. You're right about that mentality that can kick in. Apparently, by the way, just a side note, but probably not a side note since mindsets come up organically somehow, there's a process called fractionation, which is known in the, the hypnosis and not mind control, but getting people into hypnotic states, um, trance states, which is to say that if you give people rewards sometimes, but not others. That's apparently one reason why gambling is more addictive than if you just put the money in the slot and got a guaranteed return. And all entrepreneurship has an element of that, doesn't it? So the fact that it's variable yeah. and the fact that you have that day where you sell 100 units, even though you've normally sold one a day, that particularly in Q4 can really give you the feeling, oh, but it could work, it could work. And so I, I like that objectivity a great deal. So an excessive focus on one metric, uh, that's not something I've heard people articulate before but i've absolutely seen it so as soon as you said that i thought oh wow yes i see this when you say oh revenue is a disaster i agree yeah. it's extremely prevalent isn't it customer acquisition it costs is. is perhaps more obscure but nevertheless yeah. what are the the signs that you're falling into that well that i don't think that's easy to uh, answer in a very generic way because it really differs all which metric uh, which company and uh, which business Okay, but if you wake up, if, if you wake up in the morning and you only check how many units you sold and what the revenue is, and you don't look at the profits and your year end target is only expressed in revenue, probably you're somewhat vulnerable for it. Yes. I would say, by the way, to forgive anyone out there who's doing this, first of all, I've done it a lot and it's very easy to do because Amazon makes it very easy to see that they don't even really make it easy to see what your advertising is costing you. Obviously they have a cost, but I would argue that's a BS metric that gives you the feeling of control without having control. Cause it's not measured as a percentage of your overall sales for a product really. So I, I think it's a apparent control that isn't, but I would say also, yeah, it's hard to get profit, isn't it? It's hard to figure that out. It takes a lot of sweat and you've got to do the plunging into the numbers, hiring a bookkeeper. That's really hard. And I guess what we're saying is please do that work because it's really worth it. One question that's coming from the Facebook user is a really good one, which relates very much to some of the stuff you were saying about paying yourself first, if you're in that situation. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts about the profit first model? I think I've got it here's Mike Michalovich, isn't it? Where you pay yourself first yeah. and make the rest of the money work harder. When should we apply that? And when should we use that with caution? Profit first works really well if you're a stable business. If you are, for those who are not familiar with profit first, their theory is basically you take a percentage of the revenue allocate that to your profit and you pay that first. 
And then you have uh, a certain percentage of your revenue available for all sorts of different costs. And if you're having a relatively flat business, that works really well because it pushes you to focus on profitability and it allocates the budget for your overhead, for your marketing, for your offers, whatever. If you're a high growth business, on the other hand, I absolutely re uh, recommend against it. If you use profit first in a high growth setting and in the beginning of the year, you say we allocate 10% of revenue for, for office and for, uh, for marketing. But at the end of the year, your revenue is three times what it was in the beginning. If you stick with that percentage, you're also going to spend three times as much on your office and on your marketing and on other things. So it leads to overspending on overhead. So for, yeah, for a stable business, it works really well. It's a relatively easy 80-20 approach. If you're high growth, please be very careful or you have to readjust the percentages every month or every quarter, but that kind of takes the value away from it uh, and makes it still very tedious. Yeah, interesting. I like this a lot. I think, yeah, hacks and simplification. Simplification is a great thing because it often requires brutal honesty and, and it forces you to have disciplines, which is a great thing. As to the points we're making today, right? Yeah. Honesty and discipline seems to be the under, some of the underlying themes. But yeah, it's a very good point that if you're spending, if you increase your overhead in proportion to your revenue, you're quite often going to have nasty side effects that mean overall your profit will decrease quite rapidly because quite often you'll find your gross margins challenged by you're going to have various other costs that creep in as well. Never mind, without even talking about inflation and supply chain costs and ads going up 50% year on year and on, on Amazon, maybe it's been more than that from the stats I've seen. Yeah, I think somebody's talked to my, my podcast co-host, Jason Miles, who calls himself a profit-driven entrepreneur. He and his wife are very aware of their profit and loss um, statements. And he talks about trying to widen the jaws so that if you grow your business, the percentage of profit you make actually grows as well. Should, yes. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that as a goal. So I guess that how do we go the opposite way to all these classic errors and actually make sure that our businesses are both profitable and over time can pay us for that lifestyle that we want as well. If you're making the budget, there's two things I would do. One is you have a gross margin target. So what percentage of your revenue should be the gross margin? That's the one. And that is a percentage of your revenue and that should creep up a little bit. That's probably not going to jump up a lot simply because you can't cut your product cost in half. Uh, you may cut off a little bit left and right, but that's not going to change massively. That is something to keep in mind when you're launching new products, that the gross margin needs to be at that benchmark or higher. But your overhead, you don't want to forecast that on a uh, percentage of revenue, but that should be forecasted in dollars or pounds or whatever your currency is. Because that means if your revenue grows, your gross margin percentage stays the same. So your gross margin in dollars goes up and your overhead stays the same in dollars. And that means that what you call it, the jaw is opening. That means you get a higher net margin percentage and therefore also in dollars. Okay, that's really good. So simple rules of thumb, have a gross margin target, get it to creep down, which by the way, if you're selling more and you've got good branding, you should be able to keep the price high because your branding's strong. And then you definitely should get economies of scale from any producer worth their salts. If your MOQ is 10,000, you should be getting a better unit economics than one. And of course, if you can fill a container as opposed to less than container load, the shipping cost per unit drops down greatly. And that's when you really get the economies of scale. So that should definitely be doable. But your warning about the overhead is 
really helpful. I think people are even less organized than that. My experience that they just add overhead because they generally feel there's money in the business. They don't even do a budget. It's not a percentage of anything. They just add a member of staff because they feel yeah. they should be doing social media marketing. If somebody's in that kind of situation, what are your thoughts for them? Actually, and that, that what I mentioned earlier, make a plan. If you don't know where you want to go, if you don't know what the destination is or what the destination looks like, you also don't know what the road is to get there. So you really want to make a plan, break that down into how does that road look like? What metrics do I need to track to get there? And then follow up on that. Keep that as your guide every month or every quarter. Amazing. All right. Two ways to go with this. I think this, first of all, this has been great reality check. I feel like we have to offer people a solution on how to make a plan. Maybe that's uh, going to be for a separate podcast recording because this feels like it's it's been uh, substantial enough for people to take on board and they're still reeling in the corner from the reality that maybe they're doing some slightly dumb things financially, but it's much better than waking up one day and finding out your business is bankrupt by a large factor of, of greatness there. So let's tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you offer, because obviously you've got a lot of wisdom that is a blend of some kind of common sense, aka strategy. Sometimes I think the two are quite similar. Now, do you have a plan for growth? What do you want to do with your business? Kind of common sense questions, but also strategic ones. So what do you offer people who want to work a bit more closely with you? One of the things we do uh, when we get started with a new client, we always start with what we call a game plan. And that's exactly that. Identify what the personal goal is, translate that into the business goal, break that down into what metrics you should be looking at to, to monitor your progress, and then translate that into what does your accounts need to look like? What does your bookkeeping need to look like so that you can actually get the right information from your books and from other platforms so that you can actually measure the progress properly. So that's the number one thing we do to start with any new clients. How do people work? Sorry, musing uh, when I went here. How do people uh, get hold of you and if they want to go further with this game plan, which sounds really you know, intelligent to me? The best way is to go to financeinsightmatters.com slash amazingfba. That is where you will find the link to the game plan. And that's where you also find the discount code for it, specifically for the listeners of this podcast. And alternatively is to uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. Great. That sounds easy enough. And I know that you offer a free personal audit as well, which having spoken to you today, even for myself, or let alone for some of the clients I've worked with over the years, that feels like a really wise thing to do. So how do we get hold of you for, for that personal audit? You go to financeinsightmatters.com slash mini game plan. And what sort of things are you going to see from that audit? Basically it is a quiz with a few questions on how big your business is, what your goal is, how many SKUs you have, these kind of things, because that gives us like 80% of information with just 20% of the questions. And what you're going to get from that is a personal video from me within 24 hours that lists what we would see as the metrics you would have to look at. Again, this is the 80, 20 version because you really want to do the full game plan to get the exact picture and the whole translation, but the 80, 20 is. This game, this few questions, and we'll get you a list of metrics that fit your role and your business. 
Great. So it sounds like pretty much everyone should check. I presume that's a free audit anyway. That was so, free, yes. Yeah. So pretty much everyone listening, I think even if you just go on it and discover that you're doing everything right, you probably should at least check it. Financeinsightmatters.com forward slash mini game plan. Sounds like extremely worth doing. And then if one of people want to take it further, then they can go to financeinsightmatters.com forward slash amazing FBA if they want to take it further with you. And I guess that people are often reluctant to spend money on consultants and coaches because it's harder to see the value than advertising where you get the um, addiction, <laughs> it feeds the addiction, or do you call it the uh, dopamine hit of a sale or a product line where you can stroke your products and look at it in the packaging and think how beautiful it is. But the truth is that if you're driving blind, you're really in danger and you may not even know it. So I would just really urge anyone to, if you're not going to talk to Rob, at least talk to your accountant, talk to somebody who's financially literate and understands the e-commerce space. Because when you do, I know from experience that you're going to have some some moments where you go, I wish I didn't know this, but now I do. But then you've got a chance to turn it around. So I think it's really important uh, work to do. And uh, Rob, I think that you've proven how much common sense you've got in this area, which is actually ironically not common. We have entrepreneurs doing stuff. And then we have accountants producing numbers. And that gap is often yep. there. And I think you're the perfect person to fill it. So thank you so much for, for sharing your wisdom. Really fantastic stuff. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to the 10K Collective podcast for six and seven figure Amazon sellers. I really hope you found the show helpful to you. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave us a quick star rating. It will take you all of 30 seconds to do it, but it does mean we can be found by and help many more e-commerce business builders. I wish you fast and profitable scaling, and I hope you enjoy the process of building your seven-figure Amazon business. Thanks very much for listening.